Here we are. Welcome and good afternoon. It's so amazingly wonderful to be with you today. Um, this is truly an auspicious day, and I'm happy to offer a few words of introduction for this celebration of Flint's Dharma transmission. Zen practice is not something you do. It's something that moves through you so that you become a medium for its creative expression. Mostly, we practice to learn how to get out of its way. As we're learning how to do this more and more, it is becoming both more powerful and more creative in that expression. We recognize and celebrate some of those shining moments on the spiritual path. And we do this through our ceremonies. Last week, we held our Bodhisattva initiation ceremony for Anne McReady and John Miller, formally receiving the Buddhist precepts. And today, we celebrate Flint's Dharma transmission. These ceremonies affirm our deep connection with the profound wisdom of our spiritual ancestors, our surrender to the free expression of this Dharma path, our commitment to our vow, and our ongoing evolutionary vision for our spiritual community. They hearten and encourage us all on our own spiritual journeys. Flint and I have walked this path together for over 20 years, inspiring and learning from each other, teaching together, designing and realizing the shared vision of a spiritual community of practice, inquiry, study, connection, and care called Apamada. It is a great treasure to have spiritual friendship, spiritual companionship, and mutual understanding for the way of the vow. We have truly raised each other, inspired by many phenomenal teachers, past and present, as well as our wonderful students and trusted teachers, council members, and board. Flint and our Sangha have been lovingly supported by his partner, Aaron. And so this ceremony is also a tribute to our partners, families, friends, and colleagues who support us on our spiritual path. Flint was my ordination teacher when I ordained as a Zen priest, and he officiated for my formal Dharma teacher entrustment, a step before Dharma transmission. Once I had received Dharma transmission myself from Kosho McCall, it was my great joy to bring our journey full circle in conveying to Flint the formal Dharma transmission ceremonies at my home in Wilmette, Illinois, where we were assisted by Victoria Austin from San Francisco Zen Center, a longtime spiritual friend of Flint's. Dharma transmission recognizes and celebrates deep spiritual attainment in wisdom, clarity, and compassion, tireless service, and the capacity to teach and convey the Dharma to future generations. Certainly, Flint has exemplified those qualities. Still, the path was a bumpy one. Our formal ceremonies of Dharma transmission were delayed several times by the pandemic, which has only amplified our great delight in finally realizing them. Flint is a boundless light in the world, as so many of you know. And so I'm very happy for us today as he offers his first Dharma talk as Jigen Koshin Flint Sparks, new Zen ancestor and Dharma transmitted teacher. Flint, thank you so much for sharing your spiritual journey with all of us. It's, it's lovely just to take all of you in <clears throat> and all of you who are online too, I'm not able to see quite so clearly. Um, and by gratitude, and my dedication of today's uh, gathering is what, what comes first. 
many, many years ago, and some of you have heard this little vignette, um, Peg asked me a question about certain positive qualities she saw in me and wondered how that those had, had arisen. And I said in that moment, a quiet morning when we were offering incense before morning zazen, she was my attendant that day, I said, I've been fortunate to have been loved enough. And as I sit here directly aligned with my mother and my sister, uh, I can say that I've been a, a great beneficiary of that, that love. And my father, who is no longer embodied, but um, can feel his presence, presence here. And of course, Aaron, without whom I would not have made this path uh, this far along, helping me all the way from the late 90s in which I informed him that I thought I was going to take a little detour from my psychotherapy path. <laughs> and he's like, what was that be? But when I answered Peg that morning, uh, I, I, I've been loved a lot and I'm very grateful. She said in her beautiful way, she said, well, that gets you halfway. <laughs> Meaning that's a good foundation, but then you have to practice. And I've been blessed to have many, many teachers, Peg included, uh, and my own family, and all of you. I could tell stories about every single person that I see as I look here, who have supported me and encouraged me and made this, this day possible. Uh, friends, students, family. Um, so, some of this uh, gratitude is uh, what we called in the transmission ceremonies vertical. There are teachers who came before me who offered the Dharma to me in that way as a senior. And then there's the horizontal, of mind to mind, body to body, eye to eye, face to face. We feel the, the sameness, but it's, Im it's impossible to actually express all of this adequately. And I don't mean just my gratitude. I mean what these ceremonies and what this step means. It's something actually that in some ways should not be spoken about uh, directly. <clears throat> not because it's some grand secret, but because it's quite private and intimate in terms of the transmission itself, and yet we've all shared in it, and we continue to share in it. So, as Katagiri Roshi said once, you have to say something. Uh, so, so we do. To tell you the truth, the beginning with my own teacher, Blanche Hartman, who has passed, uh, began with a bow. I was a guest student at the San Francisco Zen Center for the first time. I knew absolutely nothing other than I was drawn to that practice. And one morning in service, when she was the senior priest provide, uh, presiding at that, that ceremony, the doshi, I watched her as she stood in front of the bowing mat, in front of the altar at City Center in San Francisco. As she opened her bowing mat, as you, uh, bowing cloth, that you just saw us do, and do her bows. And the way that she approached the altar and the way she handled her bowing cloth was completely arresting. I didn't know, I, I knew what was happening. I could see what she was doing. I didn't know what was hitting me and what was penetrating me. And I knew in that moment, it's like, whatever that is, I want to know about that. And I've spent the last 25 years becoming more intimate with, with that. And Peg and I have shared, as she said, this, um, this learning and this practice and this experience together. This question about what's being transmitted that you can't talk about is a very common theme in the Zen tradition, as some of you know. The very first transmission that is recorded, at least in the literature, in northern India, the Buddha was with his student Mahakashyapa. Some of you know this story, that the Buddha was, was holding a flower. 
And Mahakashyapa, like some of you have done, as I look in your face, a smile, and the Buddha could see, oh, he, he gets what this, without a word, he sees what I'm offering. And that was the first transmission. He was later given the robe and the bowl. <clears throat> and this began the lineage that we find ourselves in now. And there are stepping stones along the way from Northern India into China, the somewhat mythical character of Bodhidharma, uh, the wild barbarian, they say. He said this when asked, what is this Zen that you're transmitting? He said, it's a special transmission outside the scriptures, not depending on words and letters, directly pointing at the mind, the heart mind, seeing into one's own nature and realizing Buddhahood. So it's something outside of the sutras, outside of the stories. Generations later, Huining, who became the sixth ancestor and really was the sort of heart of this lineage that we found ourselves in, he was illiterate. He literally couldn't read or write. He heard someone reciting the Diamond Sutra, and like me watching Blanche do her bows, like something clicked. And he found his way to a monastery, and there's many stories about this, but he was illiterate but wise, untrained but awake. And he was given the bowl and the robe as that transmission occurred at midnight in our ceremonies, that's actually part of the ceremonies. There's a, a beautiful ceremony that happens in, at midnight to reenact what happened with, with that ancestor. Then another step along the pathway of our ancestors, Dogen, who made a perilous trip from Japan to China because he wanted to find what it was a deeper practice than he could find where he was. He met Rujing, his teacher there, and was given transmission. And his teacher said, through practice, body and mind of themselves drop away. There is a trace of realization that can't be grasped. We endlessly express this ungraspable trace of realization. Similar to what Peg was saying a while ago, it's an expressive quality that isn't something you have. Then to our more contemporary teacher, Suzuki Roshi, who was the founding teacher of the San Francisco temples in which our ordination in our lineage is based in modern times. Spoke about beginner's mind, but he also said, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as an enlightened person. There's only enlightened activity. This is the way we express ourselves and comport ourselves. Joko Beck, who I was privileged to spend just a little time with at the end of her life, but Peg spent a good bit of time with her, one of her root teachers. She spoke not so much of Buddha, but of life as it is. And a recent quotation, I think, which is quite powerful from her, says, what makes it unbearable, and I think it meaning this difficult life, what makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured. <laughs> so as we go from the Buddha to Mahakashapa with that first flower, into China with Bodhidharma, through China with the ancestors, into Japan, onto the United States, and here today, to, to San Diego, to Chicago, to Austin, to San Francisco. This is how the lineage goes. And in the preparatory parts of the ceremonies, I was doing bows every day to each name in the male and female lineages, which means about 200 a day, because these are men and women who gave their lives to keep this lineage alive. It's an immense responsibility and requires a kind of a humility that I'm continuing to learn more about.
And now, me? It's incredulous, even at moments embarrassing, to think um, in this way. You know, Lin Ji in the ninth century in China, uh, this is a little part of a, a beginning koan that's quite famous. He said, there is a true person of no rank, a true person of no rank, who is constantly coming and going from the portals of your face. <laughs> who is this true person of no rank? So you have to consider who you have to, I have to uh, take up the robes. I have to comport myself with some dignity and yet not make too much of it. And the head student, the Shuso ceremony, many of you have witnessed and some of you participated in. In the final ceremony, there's a, a moment in which the head student is offered a staff which they hold while they're answering questions from the Sangha. And when we offer it to them, they say, though just a mosquito biting an iron bull, <laughs> this staff is now in my hands. But though a mosquito biting an iron bull, I, but I cannot give it away. It's now in my hands, I cannot give it away. And then at the end of that wonderful ceremony, Shuso ceremony, and, and Peg and I were remembering this as we were attempting to copy immense documents on silk by hand. In the Shuso ceremony, there's a statement that says, please forgive my mistakes, they fill heaven and earth, leaving me nowhere to hide. <laughs> so that's part of it too, but what? that's some of how this transmission has come to us. It's some of how I've gotten here. How, how did you get here today? And what brought you? So I'll make a guess and you let me know if I'm in the territory. Some of you came because you just wanted to be together because you can now. <laughs> because you want to feel something. That's what it's like to be with each other. Some of us came together to, to celebrate something or even someone, celebrate something. And a little bit different is coming to honor something, something larger than yourself, and not me necessarily. We do have to, we sit in the seat for the Buddha or for the ancestors, but it's not us personally. Some come to listen and discover. You just like to listen to me and Peg talk, you know, about things. So to learn something, maybe. I would say that most of you probably come, if you were honest, because you hope that you'll be able to offer your love and receive the love of those around you. So what's the gift that you're going to take home when we, we finish this? Our practice with and through our bodies forms a mandala. And a mandala is a map of the mystery. And by coming together like this and engaging in rituals, we make what some of our teachers call with liturgy, we make the invisible visible. That which I couldn't quite put my finger on, but Blanche made visible. Peg spoke about it this Tuesday as a, a mala, stringing together the ancestors, each of us, the thread of the Dharma running through it. My term for all of this is the embodied inconceivable. It's not something that you can actually hold in your mind and conceive of completely, but you can feel in your body, you can carry in your body. I thought I would come to Zen practice, I would understand a bunch of stuff, realize what this path offered, attained something, maybe called enlightenment, whatever you want to call it. And if I did that, then all my problems would be solved and my faults and flaws would be fixed. <laughs> right? Yeah. But there's an alchemy that occurs through practice, through ritual. 
through embodying the form, through liturgy, that doesn't repair something that's broken. And it suddenly do doesn't uh, elevate anything. It, it's the revelation, finally, of the fullness of each and every ordinary moment and each and every ordinary and incomparable life. And I've discovered that moments of awakening, even small little moments of insight we might have, always defeat my understanding. They go beyond my personal way to try to make sense of the world and improve my personality. It always goes beyond that. Because it's not something you finally understand. The Dharma isn't like that. It's not something that um, we come to know. It's a matter of through its engagement, what it does to us. When we engage the forms, how does it shape us? It molds us and shapes us in a different way. When you leave here today, you probably won't remember anything that I've said. Maybe a joke or something. But I hope that you will feel that something has shifted or been illuminated or touched, that you'll feel it in your body. You know, philosophy can give us some understanding and a sense of at least perceived meaning. It's useful in some ways. Uh, psychology and psychotherapy can give us insight and help relieve us of some of our burdens. It can be incredibly useful. I spent a lot of my uh, life assisting people with that. But spiritual practice, and might I say to the side, religion, it's not a bad word for some people, shapes us through engagement with the forms. It's not about just understanding something or shifting our, our pains and difficulties. It shapes us. Once I was sitting and in a situation like this in the audience at San Francisco Zen Center at a Dharma talk, and I happened to be sitting right next to Robert Aiken Roshi. This was in the mid-90s. He was a luminary in um, the Western Zen tradition. He's since passed, of course, but someone was asking about a belief, what to believe in after a Dharma talk. And he listened to all the discussion, and then his thin old arm now mine looks like that when I raised, <laughs> raised up and people said, oh, Roshi, yes. You know, and he said, in Zen, there is nothing to believe and everything to discover. The first Dharma talk I ever heard at San Francisco Zen Center, the first time I did a one day sitting at Green Gulch Farm, Reb Anderson was giving the talk. He was Abbott at that time. And I was kind of in shock from the one day sitting. And I don't remember anything he said except the last thing. This long talk, I, I remember it all. But he's, he posed a question at the end. He said, is it ordinary or is it holy? It's a matter, I think, in some ways of really of devotion. It's, it's maybe an old-fashioned concept. And this is what the ceremonies have been about, that we've engaged in, what Blanche embodied in those early vows. And it's what Peg spoke about in her introduction. How is awakening expressed? How does awakening look and feel through a body and in relationship? That's what matters, not about what you might understand. How does it appear? in human form. And this can get really sticky because as a Zen student, it, you can turn into someone who wants to perform and be a good Zen student and look good. This is why I think in some ways, and this is another talk, why Zazen is not ordinary meditation. It's not an instrumental activity we do to uh, achieve something special or achieve a great state of consciousness. 
Zazen is the expression of our awakened nature. Uh, Sojin Mel Weitzman was at the Berkeley Zen Center. Sojin's name is four back from mine on the lineage papers. He said it's about sincere effort. That's what our practice is about, sincere effort. Not understanding something, but meeting our lives with sincere effort, with an emphasis on upright conduct, character, and concern about future generations. I carry this so others can, can have it. And ultimately, over time, knowledge yields to wisdom. And I spoke about Blanche Hartman recently in an inquiry when she said, this is our spirit. So we need to practice with respect for things. Blanche follows Sojin. She's three up for me on the list in the lineage. This is our spirit. And then Suzuki Roshi, six names above mine, said, you know, it takes a calm mind to see virtue. And we seek to emulate the virtue of our ancestors in our own minds, our hearts, our speech, our actions. But this virtue isn't some kind of self-righteous, holier-than-thou kind of thing that we often think of in contemporary times. In fact, in, in Chinese, in the ideogram that's translated as virtue, the, uh, one side is um, a double person. And the other side is a heart-mind. So it requires two people for virtue to open. Or maybe if you practice to emulate this kind of virtue, you have like double its capacity. It multiplies compassion, it multiplies empathy, and it calls forward courage. But devotion doesn't mean, once again, belief. Um, Suzuki Roshi was asked one time, what is Zen? He said, Zen is when any religion goes beyond itself, including Zen. It's stepping beyond. It isn't landing and knowing something. So I've talked a lot about how this how I feel some about the ceremonies rather than the ceremonies themselves, but we have to engage in a ceremony, okay? Because if we don't, it won't be in your body. How many of you have seen the pictures of the blood vein documents, the Kechimiyaku it's called, which shows the red line going from the Buddha through India, then into China, then into Japan, and then it ultimately goes back uh, to the Buddha. I'm putting a knot in this, and you put another knot in that. So here's the blood vein. <clears throat> which we've tied together through our, you just put that behind our chairs on the floor is fine. Give that to mom and to John Eric. Uh-oh. It goes like that sometimes. <laughs> and by the way, this is mom's yarn. And so once it's to Thomasine and to John Eric, if there's a knot, how many of you saw the Instagram feed of mom and John Eric? If you will then pass it to the person next to you, but hold on to it, hold on to the string, hold on to the string, but pass the ball and then just keep it going to the end of the row. And our attendants will help you.
And then when it gets to the end of the row, you just pass it around, you go back to, to Robert, and you go there, right. And just let it, well, this is how it actually looks on the documents. And also, you all know, many of you are familiar enough with me to know that we couldn't go without at least one poem. And you know the one I'll read, because it's, it's inevitable, and plus it's perfect. Yeah, William Stafford, the way it is. The poem that's in the sewing room. Here's the poem, it's not long. There's a thread you follow. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. What's my teacher asking me to do, for goodness sakes? And then, then suddenly it's like, oh, but how's everybody else doing? Am I, am I doing it right? You know this, right? Because when self-concern gets elevated over wholehearted devotion, we begin to lose the form. We try to explain and predict and control things like Joanna Macy talks about. We lose the form, which is just wholehearted devotion. Our forms, even this simple thing, our forms are awakened, embodied, activity, looking for dignity through devotion. Okay, go ahead and do it again. Our forms are awakened embodied activity, simply passing something to someone we love, looking for dignity through devotion. Devotion expresses kind of a dignity which is an awakened body, the activity. This is our, and let it unfurl all the way. By the way, in the documents, that blood vein goes all the way back to Buddha again. Once it's gone through all the ancestors. Let it come straight up through the middle. That's fine if you. And this on the altar on either side of the incensor, just the little wall. <clears throat> See, now they're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> offering and receiving get mixed up, don't they? Are you offering something or are you receiving something? Well, yes. <laughs> And facing tasks in the ceremonies, as we did, and as, as I did earlier, are completely overwhelming, I can tell you. I don't mean because they're like emotionally powerful. I mean just the physical activity of bowing 200 times, of doing a morning service every morning, um, all the things that you watched me do and that we did, the copying is, spectacularly difficult <laughs> and, uh, and challenging. The sewing. When we did the Jundo every morning, going to all the altars around the temple in this place, her house, my house before, and then her house. It purifies the space, which is what we did by you coming here. And then we did the morning liturgy. We dedicated ourselves to our teachers. And then we vows and incense offerings to the whole lineage of gratitude. So purification, dedication, gratitude, over and over, every single day. Because what it allowed over time was surrender. 
to an activity at hand, whatever it was, and in a wholesome manner, not submission, surrender. I'll surrender myself to a task that I don't know how long it's going to take me to copy by hand this book about that thick, but I'll just keep at it. Or so these things, or I'll copy these vast documents. And do it with no hope of fruition, no hope that it will actually get you anything. Just saying yes to the form is saying yes to life. I will live this life. And we offer our body to this devotional practice, which is inconceivable, yet it's, uh, it's essential. Some of you heard the wonderfully uh, ornery statement of Kota Sawaki Roshi, who's a, a wonderful and ornery teacher in Japan. Um, and many Western students who come to study with him because he was like the real deal, you know. And I'm sorry that we can't have the thread of all of you online, by the way. <laughs> you might want to go hold it. <laughs> And he would say, oh, I don't know why. Why you want to come sit Zazen? It's like useless. It's a, it's a waste of time. And if you don't do this useful activity, your life will be a waste of time. <laughs> this is how we take our seat in the family of things. That wonderful line from Mary Oliver, at the end of the journey, receive the family of things. And it's surreal to see one's name on these lineage documents. So I'm going to ask, we're going to continue with a little bit of liturgy here. We're going to recite five lines, call and response, so you get a little feel for it, okay? I'll say the line, you say it back to me. Ready? Buddhas and ancestors of old were as weak. Buddhas and ancestors of old were as weak. We in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. We in the future shall be Buddhas and ancestors. Revering Buddhas and ancestors. Revering Buddhas and ancestors. We are one Buddha and one ancestor. We are one Buddha and one ancestor. Awakening Bodhi mind, we are one Bodhi mind. Awakening Bodhi mind, we are one Bodhi mind. So you have engaged the process of connecting. You have now avowed that, oh, you're one mind and one body with all the Buddhas and ancestors. What's it like to feel the responsibility of holding the thread? You feel it, don't you? What would be the impact of dropping it? Or ignoring it? Or cutting it off? Did anybody find the broken place where it was tied together? Anybody, there's a place where it's tied together. It may not have come up. There is one place I had to... Sometimes you find in the lineage, there's broken places that you have to stitch together, you know? Now that you have it, how are you going to live with it? <laughs> Handle it. Where do you go from here? Are you bound up or are you more free? And what's the difference? Like, like copying those lineage documents, this maps the territory of the flow of the Dharma through our human lives. Like blood going through our body, hence the blood vein. And it connects our concern for future generations. And the precepts, see, that's what happens. You get tangled. <laughs> and you can't get away. And the precept ceremonies, which is the foundation of all of this, our nation ceremonies. And the last of the 16 Bodhisattva precepts and the full moon ceremony when we rededicate ourselves each month. The precept is, I vow not 
to disparage the three treasures, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, about not to disparage the three treasures. But listen to the explication of it that then comes in the, the ceremony. To expound the Dharma with this body, to expound the Dharma with this body is foremost. The virtue returned to the ocean of reality. It's unfathomable. We just accept it with respect and gratitude. With great respect and great gratitude, we accept what comes from our devotion to our forms. It's unfathomable. Whatever virtue comes goes back to the ocean of reality, which means it benefits everyone. And we expound the Dharma with your body. I said to Peg, and he said, I was saying it, she was going like this. I said to Peg, if anyone really knew what this entailed, they wouldn't want it. <laughs> and I know some of you have probably read or are reading the beautiful new book, The Shamanic Bones of Zen by Zen Shu Erfman Manuel, who's one of our Zen sisters. She's a Dharma era Blanche. And we heard some about that beautiful ceremony from Vicky, who was completing that for Blanche as she was dying. This is one thing that Zenshu wrote. The rituals involved are binding. Most practitioners are not ready for what will come of them during and after the ceremony. Even if one disrobes, the rituals and ceremonies sealed your bond to the teacher and the teachings, to constant ceremony, into awakening over and over, it can be exhausting. Especially when it's at your house. <laughs> <laughs> Which really just means this um, leaves us in a, a position of a lifetime of devotion. When Blanche could no longer offer vows when she was too old, and on my last meeting with her, some of you have heard me speak about that meeting, but when I wanted to offer incense at the main altar at San Francisco Zen Center when I met her, she said, yeah, you, you do that. I'm going to sit back here. There's a pew in the back. I'm going to sit back here. But she showed up for it with her cane, and she bore witness. She put on her moccasin, and she encouraged, and she loved me. And this is what we do with each other. On the last night, Vicky would see her every night until she died in the last year of her life. On the last night she was visiting Blanche before Vicky left, Blanche said, well, let's wait just a minute. Let's, uh, let's check our intention. She would say this often when we would practice. Let's, let's check our intention. This is before she died that night. And Vicky asked me during the week, Kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but also not so much. She said, uh, what is Blanche telling you during these ceremonies? And I said, well, it's strange that you would ask because she is. And it's the strangest thing. She says, she keeps telling me to take good care of my mudra. You know, when you sit in zazen and you have the cosmic mudra, if it collapses or it gets tight, or just take care of your mudra. Just do the simple thing with your body and the whole. Space. How are you holding the practice of your body? So attendance, if you come retrieve these balls from the ball, And you're going to have to roll it back up. <laughs> and you're going to have to let it go. And once again, it's going to take a little time. But while they do, I hope that you would be willing after 
reflecting on these things, to, to maybe engage with your own body for important things as you go out from here. I mean, enjoy our ceremony uh, and our uh, reception. Plunge, plunge into it all. Plunge into your life. Plunge into it all. Open to it all. <clears throat> Forgive it all. And offer it all. Plunge into it all. Open to it all. Forgive it all. Offer it all. On the very last morning, as we were sitting in a small circle and I was receiving some of the objects, like this beautiful um, and many other things, which by the way, I was fortunate to allow me to uh, make this one um, out of koa wood from Big Island, Hawaii. Brooke and I made this in the, in the shop. Vicky and Peg asked if there was anything else, and I said, yeah, I think so. I said, retrieve your notebooks. So we each, we each had our notebook. And uh, I'd had transmission then, so I could tell them what to do now. <laughs> <laughs> I could participate at this level. I said, I'm going to write, I'm going to write, uh, we're each going to write a line of haiku. We're going to make one haiku, but each of us is going to participate. So I wrote a line, and then Vicky wrote the second line, and you wrote the third line. And so here's, here's the haiku that we'll end with, which is the one we ended with there. And so as I'm reading it, don't look at me, look at this. Because we have the most beautiful cherry blossoms that we had gotten, and it was cold in Chicago. <laughs> but by golly, with the little warmth and the water, you know, they began to pop, they began to open. And it was so gorgeous to watch them over the last few days. And I was in a state that you can imagine was quite uh, unusual at that point. That's so how I wrote, counting my syllables. <laughs> Just this morning, joy. And I passed it to, and I didn't see what they were writing, of course. I passed it to Vicki and she wrote, after looking at my mind, cherry blossoms bursting forth. And then to peg kindness flowering. Just this morning, just this day, just now, joy. Cherry blossoms and red buds, mountain laurel, and all those ornamental plants that Lady Bird Johnson planted in the world. <laughs> Bursting forth, kindness, flowering. So thank you for your kind attention and your willingness to hang in there through all of this. And also thank you for the generous ways in which you all contributed to make the ceremonies and everything else happened. Because this is really for you. Um, once again, we take the seat and hold the space, but it's in support of, of the Dharma, something much, much greater is it, is it for us. But the appreciation can be embodied through us, for you. We'll take our time as the last bit is coming back here.
expel the Dharma with this body is foremost. The virtue returns to the ocean of reality. It's unfathomable. We just accept it with respect and gratitude. This eventually will return to Buddha, and then after that, like mom. <laughs> that would be a blessing. That's right. Whatever gets made out of that, it's going to have an immense amount of blessings on it, right? <laughs> Students Nate and Jessica. We have our current Shuso in tandem, Jessica and Nate. Uh, we began an uh, common a ritual, sometimes having shared roles because we're such a uh, relational uh, sangha. And it began in Madison. It began in Madison with uh, the two people who brought me to Madison originally. And a long, long time ago, and it turned out to be a pretty nice thing. Mm -hmm. So thank you. <laughs>